Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. I figured out that in Reaper, the recording software that I use, I use an evaluation version of it. And when you open the evaluation version of it, you have to wait five seconds before you can click a button that says still evaluating. And it ticks down five, four, three. And I really feel like they're longer than seconds. It goes forever. Anyway, yesterday I figured out, after years of using the software, that you can actually still start recording in the background while you're waiting for that 54321 to tick down. So all these thousands of times I've used Reaper, and I've waited five seconds before I can start the recording, and now I learn that those were all wasted seconds. 5,000. At least. 5,000 at least wasted seconds. How many... 5,000 divided by 60 is 83 minutes? It's not that many minutes really, is it? It's only an hour. and a, One hour and 23 minutes. I guess I wasted an hour and 23 minutes of my life though. Waiting for a little thing to tick down. Um, book 9, chapter 4, that's what we're actually meant to be talking about. We're currently back again since four chapters in the war part of the book. Are you already missing Pierre and all the other peace characters, or are you glad to be back? We are introduced to two new characters in this chapter, the Russian general Balashov, who's used to being close to the highest power and used to being respected for his service, and the new Neapolitan, Neapolitan king, Murat, who isn't used to his position yet. Do you like these characters and their interaction? Now, I didn't write these discussion prompts, by the way, but this is not the first we've seen of Murat. Murat was the one who did the tricky tricky on the bridge to um, trick the Russian soldiers who were guarding the bridge into thinking that there'd been a peace treaty met. Murat's an awesome character. He's the most glamorous person in history. I reckon. And that's crazy when you think that he was Napoleon's right-hand man. You know, Napoleon, the most famous person to have ever existed. And you'd think the most glamorous, the most uh, extravagant. But Napoleon comes in second to one man, and it was his very own right-hand man, Murat, the most extravagant man to have ever lived, arguably. Fascinating character. M-C says, I'm glad to get back to the war section, but not because of anything wrong with the peace sections. The contrast in the two settings, spheres, highlight, excuse me, highlights the absurdity of each. The men at war are just as absurd, petty and self-serving at those, as those who are at peace. But the stakes are higher, although I'm sure the peacetime stakes feel extremely high too, i.e. General Natasha Rostov absolutely reeling from her tactical blunder. Yeah, you know, in a weird way, I feel like the stakes feel higher in the peacetime. You see so much recklessness, reckless abandon in the war times. Just people just throwing themselves down the hill to the front lines. People just running into a river and drowning 
for the off chance that it might impress your leader. But you're dead anyway, so who cares if you impress them? You know? It's almost like in the war times, it doesn't feel like it's real for a lot of a lot of scenes. The characters act as if it doesn't seem real to them. Um, Rahul the Invader says, I'm not exactly clear what happens towards the end of this chapter. Did Murat deliver Alexander's message to Napoleon, or did he just shrug Balmashev off, concluding that war is inevitable? Also looks like now Balashev is meeting Devout to discuss the same thing. Four lost souls in a bowl says, Murat just wished the general luck on his mission that is presenting the Tsar's message to Napoleon. I think Murat was a little bit uh, dismissive, though. Tactical dismissiveness. Twisted Every Way says, Shameless PSA, we've passed the 50% mark of the book and I posted a thread yesterday about halfway through thoughts. That's a good idea. Shall we have a look at some halfway through thoughts? Let's do that. Let me have a look at that now. Um, it's weird if we are halfway through. See, I thought we would have been halfway through at the end of this month, seeing as there's uh, a chapter for every day of the year, right? Um, but maybe words-wise or some other way to calculate it, according to my oh-so-scientific calculations, although we are not quite halfway through the calendar year, we have just passed 50% mark for War and Peace. Well, there you go. Maybe that's by page count or something. Um, well, some a few comments. Rye Bread Egg says, I really don't have any expectations. Oddly enough, I didn't even know what the book was about. I just wanted to read the book because I knew it wasn't an easy read and I wanted to challenge myself with reading a classic, a big one at that. Great reason to jump in and... It was so unapproachable, I remember, the first time I read it, or the first few times I even really, you know, had a copy of the book for years, and whenever I'll flick through it and just go, Whoa, you know, I don't think I'm even up for this book, I don't think I'm capable of reading this book. And, um, you know, once you've read it once, it does sort of just seem very approachable. It's just a book, really. It all makes pretty good sense, especially when you do it in a community like this, where all every single chapter is discussed and broken down somewhat, so they make sure that we understand it before we move on. Um, the one thing I will say I do remember about the second half of the book, and it's really the, not even, you know, the second half has some great moments, but at the end of the book, there are two epilogues, two epilogues, and each of those epilogues has multiple chapters. So there's like, I'm going to say you know, 15 or maybe 20 chapters of epilogue. And they are brutal. They are the hardest part of the book to read. Uh, so you can look forward to that. It really does not end on a good note, <laughs> epilogue-wise. Just, I want everyone to know that's coming. And you know what? It's difficult. It's quite tedious to read those epilogues. So let's maybe try to have some fun with it. We're going to read it. You know, we can't stop at the 95% mark. You know, we've got to keep going, but um, we'll have some fun when we get there to make sure we all get there. Now I'm going to read you the next chapter. That's what I'm going to do. Chapter 5 goes like this. Wait, is it chapter 5? Yes. Uh, 
Devout was to Napoleon what Arakchev was to Alexander, though not a coward like Arakchev, he was a precise, as precise, as cruel, and as, as unable to express his devotion to his monarch except by cruelty. In the organism of states, such men are necessary, as wolves are necessary in the organism of nature, and they always exist, always appear, and hold their own, however incongruous their presence and their proximity to the head of the government may be. This inevitability alone can explain how the cruel Arak chief who tore out a grenadier's moustache with his own hands, whose weak nerves rendered him unable to face danger, and who was neither an educated man nor a courtier, was able to maintain his powerful position with Alexander, whose own character was chivalrous, noble and gentle. Balashev found Devout seated on a barrel in the shed of a peasant's hut, writing. He was auditing accounts. Better quarters could have been found him, but Marshal Devout was one of those men who purposefully, purposely put themselves in most depressing conditions to have a justification for being gloomy. For the same reason, they are always hard at work and in a hurry. How can I think of a bright side of life when, as you see, I am sitting on a barrel and working in a dirty shed? The expression of his face seemed to say. The chief pleasure of necessity of such men when they encounter anyone who shows animation is to flaunt their own dreary, persistent activity. Devour allowed himself that pleasure when Balashev was brought in. He became still more absorbed in his task when the Russian general entered, and after glancing over his spectacles at Balashev's face, which was animated by the beauty of the morning and by his talk with Murat, he did not rise or even stir, but scowled still more and sneered malevolently. When he noticed in Balashev's face the disagreeable impression this reception produced, Deval raised his head and coldly asked what he wanted, thinking he could have been received in such a manner only because Deval did not know that he was adjutant general to the Emperor Alexander, and even his envoy to Napoleon, Balashev hastened to inform him of his rank and mission. Contrary to his expectation, Devour, after hearing him, became still surlier and ruder. Where is your dispatch? he inquired. Give it to me, I will send it to the Emperor. Balashev replied that he had been ordered to hand it personally to the Emperor. Your Emperor's orders are obeyed in your army, but here, said Devour, you must do as you are told. And as if to make the general Russian still the Russian general, sorry, still more conscious of his dependence on brute force, Devout sent an adjutant to call the officer on duty. Balashev took out the packet containing the Emperor's letter and laid it on the table, made of a door with its hinges still hanging on it, laid across two barrels. Devout took the packet and read the inscription. You are perfectly at liberty to treat me with respect or not, protested Balashev, but permit me to observe that I have the honour to be adjutant general to his majesty. Devout glanced at him silently and plainly derived pleasure from the signs of agitation and confusion which appeared on Balashev's face. You will be treated as if fitting, as is fitting, said he, and putting the packet in his pocket, left the shed. A minute later the marshal's adjutant, de Castres, came in and conducted Balashev to the quarters assigned to him. That day he dined with the marshal at the same board on the barrels. Next day Devout rode out early and after asking Balashev to come to him, preemptorily requested him to remain there to move on with the baggage train should orders come for it to move, and to talk to no one except Monsieur de Castres. 
After four days of solitude, ennui, and consciousness of his impotence and insignificance, particularly acute by contrast with the sphere of power in which he had so lately moved, and after several marches with the marshal's baggage and the French army, which occupied the whole district, Balashev was brought to Vilna, now occupied by the French, through the very gate by which he had left it four days previously. Next day, the imperial gentleman in waiting, the Comte de Turin, came to Balashev and informed him of the Emperor Napoleon's wish to honour him with an audience. Four days before, sentinels of the Prebrazhensk regiment had stood in front of the house to which Balashev was conducted, and now two French grenadiers stood there in blue uniforms unfastened in front and with shaggy caps on their heads and an escort of hussars and uhlans and a brilliant suite of aides-de-camp, pages and generals who were waiting for Napoleon to come out, were standing at the porch round his saddle horse and his mameluk rustan. Napoleon received Balashev in the very house in Vilna from which Alexander had dispatched him on his mission. Alright, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Uh, Have your say about it on the subreddit. Thanks for listening and I'll see you tomorrow.